Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. I am in the studio right here at the beautiful campus of Mississippi Public Broadcasting at the old uh, R&D Center, it used to be called. I don't know what it's called anymore, but it's a beautiful campus. Uh, we're out here in Studio B, I like to sometimes call it. Uh, Kevin Farrell's here, the producer. Kevin's shoes today are very boring. They're black, but boy, he's got on some great socks, some multicolored socks. Uh, his trademark is always on his feet, though he's known for his voice. Kevin Farrell, thanks for being here. My guest today is Jerry Nash. Welcome, Jerry. Well, glad to be here, Malcolm. Kevin, good to see you. Jerry is a Greenville native, if, if my memory serves. And, yes, sir. Uh, and, and a man about town. I know you work in public affairs and you're somewhat of a political consultant, but uh, that really has very little to do with the arts. So we, <laughs> we won't spend a lot of time on that, though there is you've written, written and co-written some very interesting books about politics. And, and I certainly think that that's an art form. So we will talk a little well, bit. Well, we about, hope so. <laughs> we will talk about your books <laughs> well, as well. You. But let's let's talk about uh, growing up in Greenville. Uh where you went to school, people you knew, what it was like in Greenville during that time? Uh, well, um, the most significant happening that took place in my career in going to school in Greenville took place in the summer of 1969 when the judge ordered the desegregation of all public schools in the Delta. And I was between my um, sophomore and junior year when all of that happened. Um, so that summer is when you may remember all of the academies were created yes. all over the Delta in response to the Supreme Court decision. And um, a small group of us stayed with the public schools and finished out our career at Greenville High School. So my junior year and my senior year, um, they had combined the, the all-black Wesson High School and the all-black Coleman High School with the all-white Greenville High School, and we had one high school, um, which, of course, meant that um, that we won virtually every athletic event that we um, uh, entered into. In fact, I, I read in the paper a couple of weeks ago where the one of the recipients of this year's Sports Hall of Fame was um, Wilbert Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Who I went to high school with in Greenville. Okay, he he was a huge running back and um, became, as you know, a big star in the NFL. And um, he and I graduated together. And um, I'm a short guy, so I never could play sports. But I was an athletic trainer uh, mm-hmm. all my career and um, worked with the athletic team very closely. And Wilbert and I got to be good friends, and is just a great guy and a super athlete. And this has nothing to do with the it arts. Has nothing to do with the arts, but, but you ask. No, no, my follow-up has okay. nothing to do with the arts. Now, I'm happy to to get the the backstory on growing up. Uh, athletic trainers. I, I I was an athlete, <laughs> and and we always had a couple of guys. Mm-hmm. In those days, it was all males in all sports except for female sports, where they had female managers and trainers. Yeah, in, in our school, that's right. But. I always thought these guys who ended up doing this, being the manager slash trainer, were always this interesting combination of cheerleader, uh, sort of support system to the athletes, and sort of a uh, amateur medical uh, right. professional. Exactly right. They, they knew how to tape an ankle. That's right. But we you could. wouldn't go to them with a cold. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, but <clears throat> I've wrapped and taped many an ankle in my day. Right. That's right. And, and a confidant. They, they were a very interesting component, an essential component to the locker room and to the field and to the, I think, success or failure of the team. Well, anyway. particularly if you wanted to uh, smuggle a cigarette into the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was essential, but it sounds like. It's essential to a couple of players. <laughs> <laughs> Be able to get their smoke before a basketball game. <laughs> so then you were off to Louisiana, right? Was it straight out of Greenville and off to Louisiana Tech? Right. Uh, a friend and I decided that we wanted to go west and um, leave Mississippi and go to school somewhere else. And so we crossed the river, and she and I went to Louisiana Tech um, mm-hmm. because I wanted to— Ultimately, and this has a little bit to do with the arts, I wanted to become an audio engineer. I wanted to design audio components, and I wanted to design acoustics for concert halls. And um, in those days, you couldn't get an undergraduate degree in audio engineering. You had to get a master's degree in audio engineering. You had to first get an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. So Louisiana Tech had a really good electrical engineering program. And um, another friend who I went to school with decided she wanted to go do um, a degree that Louisiana Tech offered a really um, good program in. And she and I just sort of took off to Ruston, Louisiana without knowing anybody and went to school over there. And then you went to LSU? Well, halfway through my sophomore year, the uh, political bug bit. Okay. And, and um, audio was out. Politics and, and, was in. And it bit hard, and it has infected me for 40 years. <laughs> and um, um, and I got very interested in politics. Ultimately got the degree in electrical engineering and um, have never earned one dime um, <laughs> off the degree in electrical engineering, but went to LSU to get a master's in public policy. And... Um, and they, they had a really, really good program that was built out of the School of Business. It was not a glorified political science degree. It was, a, it was an interdisciplinary program where you took a variety of courses and run by a guy out of the economics program. Hmm. A very conservative, Republican, brilliant economic, economist who, in, in a course of two courses, just taught me a lot about free market theory and choice theory and why people make decisions like they do, and just a great guy. Wow. And then how did you end up in Jackson? Did you go from Baton Rouge to Jackson? Well, in Baton Rouge, I got involved with a group called Common Cause. Oh, yeah. And um, began lobbying for them as a volunteer. And then when I graduated from LSU, they were looking to hire somebody in Mississippi and Louisiana. And they could make those two states work because the Mississippi legislature, as you know, runs from January to March, uh-huh. and the Louisiana legislature runs from April to July. So you could have one guy do both states. And so they hired me in the fall of 78 to lobby in both Mississippi and Louisiana. And so Common Cause is a national organization. It, it was a, It's a national organization, and I did that for four years and um, the came to— came to Mississippi and lobbied for them at the very tail end of the Bill Bergen scandal. You remember yeah, that? I do. Senator from Columbus right. was caught up in an ethics deal. Right. And um, it, was a great, it was a great introduction for me as a lobbyist for a good government group to sort of come in on the wake of an ethics scandal. And that's when the Mississippi Ethics Commission was created that year in 79. And then from there, you went to the auditor's office, correct? 
Or well, did I for lose a year in '83, I ran a group called Mississippi First, okay, which was formed by a lot of people to um, elect legislators during the '83 legislative elections um, who favored public education. And that's that's when I got to know a guy named John Grisham, right. who ran for the state house in 1983. Your friend Hobrine from uh, Monroe County right. was a candidate that year. Mike Mills, also from Monroe County, was a candidate that year, and a lot of other people who've been friends ever since. And then, and then I helped Ray Mabus in his campaign for auditor. Is, is that the first campaign you worked on for an elected office? No, it was no. back in Ruston. Um, I worked in on Mississippi. It, in, maybe, yeah, Mississippi. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So did you know Ray before getting involved in his political aspirations? No. no. I was lobbying for Common Cause. Uh-huh. In 80, 81, 82, and of course, William Winter was governor then, mm-hmm. who was a huge supporter of whatever we were trying to do with open meetings and public records and ethics and campaign finance disclosure. Um, and as you may remember, his first legislative assistant was Marshall Bennett. Yes. So when um, Governor Winter was elected in 79, his first legislative session was 1980. Marshall lobbied for him. And then he appointed Marshall chairman of the Workers' Comp Commission. And um, we were all wondering who he was going to choose to hire as his legislative assistant. And then we sort of heard, well, you know, he's hired this young whippersnapper from Harvard Law School and a big DC, Washington, D.C. business. And nobody knows much about him. So we don't know who he is. And we were all, you remember, at the Central High School. Yes. You know, they were renovating the, yeah. the Capitol. For the Department of Ed. I mean, l- afterwards, right? That's right. They shut down the Capitol. Right. During William's first three years. Correct. We were all, the Capitol was at Central High School. Right. A lot more informal. You know, you could wander around all the buildings, and Governor Winter had his office in some some teacher's lounge, maybe somewhere. <laughs> you could. There was no security. Right. You just wander up into the offices, and so one afternoon, I decided to go see who Ray Mavis was, who had just come here, and um, we hit it off. Uh, he became a huge fan of what we were doing, and um, then he decided to, of course, run for auditor in 1983, and he asked me to help him. And then you became deputy auditor. Uh, I offered to help him with the transition for two months, and I lasted three years. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> so. And then you, I wouldn't say followed him, but you went along to the governor's man. That's right. Um, I ran his campaign in 87 right. for governor, and then he was kind enough to bring me with him into the governor's office. And then, of course, I had the distinction of running his campaign for governor in 1991. Mm. Um, and the rest is his history, history right. as they say. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk Greenville, and particularly, let's talk about literary Greenville. That's your hometown. Well, the the interesting thing about Greenville is that there are a lot of of people involved in the art scene there, and a lot of people who have long histories of being involved in community affairs and in writing— and um, I think you start with the Hodding Carter family. Um, Hodding Carter Jr., who edited the paper for a long number of years, won a Pulitzer Prize. His son, Hodding Carter III, who edited the paper after them and then went into the Jimmy Carter administration. Um, about the same time that the Carter family is doing their thing and Hodding Carter III is not only editing the paper, but as you remember getting involved in Democratic Party politics, the Clark Reed family— 
began to get involved in Republican Party politics. Clark Reed was chairman of the Republican Party from 1966 to 76. Right. Um, and at the same time that Hodding Carter family doing Democratic Party politics, Clark Reed and his family doing Republican Party politics, then you have all of these writers trying to sort of figure some of this out and um, and write about their own history and you start in the early days with uh, William Alexander Percy and Charles Bell and David Cohn. Oh, and David Cohn's the guy that said that the Mississippi Delta begins go. in Catfish uh, Alley in Greenville and goes to the lobby of the Peabody well, Hotel. Well, it begins in the lobby of the Peabody Hotel. Oh, that's right, and it ends in uh, Vicksburg. That was David Cohn. And then you move into Walker Percy, who right. won a National Book Award. Um, Ellen Douglas, there's his great photograph, which you've probably seen on Facebook. Ayers Haxton, I think, may have posted, um, showed a picture of Shelby Foote, Charles Bell, Ellen Douglas, and Walker Percy at a at a function at the old E.E. Bass School, where oh, yeah. you've been before several now times. Now the Art Center. Now the Art Center. Um, just as sort of emblematic of the kind of writing talent that um, that came from Greenville that that we all knew. And my next-door neighbor uh, on Kirk Circle in Greenville were uh, Kathleen and Buster McCormick. And they're the ones who started McCormick Book The bookstore, yeah. And in 1965. So I just sort of grew up in all of this. And um, the single most important thing that happened to me as a writer, Malcolm White, was that in the sixth grade um, in Greenville Public Schools, I was forced to write a term paper with footnotes. And every year, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, for seven years, I was forced to write a term paper with footnotes. Wow. That either turns you into a writer or turns you <laughs> off from being a writer, but it certainly gave me the skills I needed to become a writer. All right, we're going to take a break, come back, talk to Jerry Nash about the Mississippi Book Festival and his writing. He's published several books, co-written several books. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I am both your host today on this segment of our show, as well as the executive director of your Mississippi Arts <laughs> Commission, your arts partner, statewide. We're here with Jerry Nash. Welcome back, Jerry. Thank you. We have spoken in our first segment a little bit about Jerry's growing up in Greenville and the Mississippi Delta. I suspect we lost all of our audience. You think? Just going through Well, maybe my, they're back going now. Through maybe they just bio. went to the rest, maybe to, the, to the kitchen. To That's right. And, and they, Please, Malcolm, <laughs> change the subject. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, writing. Okay. Uh, so so you, you have authored several books. Uh -huh. Three? Is it three? Three. Three, mm -hmm. okay. Working on a fourth. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that one. So let's talk about the first book. Was that the one that you co-authored uh, with uh, Andy Taggart? Co-authored two books with Andy. The, the first one was called Mississippi Politics. The Struggle for Power. Mm -hmm. um, and we approached Cetha Cernavason, you know Cetha, yes, who at the time was director of the University Press. And um, Andy and I went and visited with her in early 2004 and talked with her about this concept of conducting oral histories of people who've been influential in contemporary Mississippi politics and writing a history built around those oral histories. And, you know, we gave her a four-page outline, and she said, bring me a manuscript in two years. <laughs> and off you went. <laughs> and off we went. And just for our listeners, uh, Andy Taggart is an attorney. He was uh, 
he was chief of staff for Governor Fordyce, right. and you were chief of staff for Governor Ray Mavis. That's right. So for those of you who don't know anything about politics, <laughs> you've got from the left and from the right. Well, and, and Andy, who um, um, has a big, big interest in history mm-hmm. and reads a lot of history and immediately joined in with the concept of doing this because we both realized, Malcolm, that if one of us were to write a history, nobody on the other side of the aisle would read it. So the only way we could um, be assured of having a decent audience and having a book have some legs to it is for both of us to do it, Uh, both sort of from the perspective of a Republican and Democrat uh, writing it. And um, and And do you still do the the TV show? No, we retired from doing that three years ago. Okay. Boy, it's been a while. (laughs) We're the kind of guys who like to leave before we're asked to leave. (laughs) Uh, WLBT had us on for eight, maybe nine years, yeah. a sort of a red-blue review, and mm-hmm. they were great hosts, and we thoroughly enjoyed doing it, but um, we just figured it was time for a change. So. Okay, so no more TV show. And, of course, uh, public broadcasting has their own uh, red-blue review with um, uh, with Brandon Jones and Austin Barber. Correct. So, and speaking of Austin Barber, you worked with Governor Barber on a book. I did. Um, uh you can appreciate how how the world works, the literary world in Jackson works. It all sort of starts and stops at Lemuria Bookstore. Absolutely. As it should be. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I walk into Lemuria one afternoon, and there's Governor Barber talking to John Evans. It turns out that he comes and sees John every Christmas, and they pick out books that Governor Barber can give to friends of his. And I walk in, and, and I'm sitting there talking to Governor Barber and John, and John says, Governor Barber, you should get Nash to help you with this book. Because he had been thinking about writing a book about his experience with Hurricane Katrina because right. they were coming up on the 10th anniversary. Right. And um, and so he was wanting to put out on paper what he learned from it and what took place. And they'd been talking to John about it at some point. And I walked in, and John put the two of us together, and two two years later— the University Press, this time um, directed by Leela Salisbury, uh, published that book. So you had the, the two books with Andy Taggart. Right. Uh, Mississippi Fried Politics was the second, second book with Andy. The first right. one was? Mississippi Politics, Struggle for Power. So two basically political mm-hmm. uh, nonfiction pieces with, with the University Press, right. with Andy Taggart. Then you work with Governor Barber right. on his Katrina book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. <clears throat> And I have that book, but frankly, I haven't read it, but that doesn't mean I won't. But I have a question about it, because <laughs> yes, when he was governor and dealing with Katrina, I was at the Arts Commission. In okay. fact, Katrina is the reason I came to the Arts Commission. Another story, another time. Uh, and well, I well, we've done my bio. We should might as well do your bio, so I don't have to talk so much. Everybody's heard mine right. repeatedly. Okay. But uh, I worked with Barber on... Uh, the the arts and cultural side of recovery. Was there anything in that book that addressed that? I don't think there was. No. Okay. Um, I didn't think the, so. The whole Mississippi Department <clears throat> of Archives and History, the the arts response, there were a lot of pieces to it that that we did not include because he didn't want to write it as sort of a comprehensive history. He just wanted to there were four or five points that he wanted to he make. He wanted to make, yeah. Um, and it was more of a memoir. And um, and so 
I would I would write it as best I could in his voice, mm-hmm. and then he would literally edit every word. And it was ultimately, Malcolm, a battle between Jerry Nash representing the University Press and the AP standards of writing a book and Haley Barber and his seventh grade English teacher from Yazoo City. <laughs> <laughs> knocking heads, knocking heads, <laughs> all up and down the book, uh-huh. and um, and of course he he won a lot of them, but um, and Leela Salisbury and the entire University Press staff did a great job. Um, we gave them the final manuscript sometime in May of 2015, and they had the book out by August of 2015 for the 10th anniversary. Yeah, and, and just, I attended the book signing, and it was. It seems like the book did rather well. It I did. don't know. It was a really good seller for them. Yeah, and, um, of course, was. Haley could market it all over the country. Right. And um, and he did and got a lot of support for it. And it was just um, I did 30 interviews for that book that he would set me up with and I would go interview people and. You, you know, you were you, in the you like of Mima, it. FEMA, those kinds of interviews. And just, yeah, and and regular regular people on the Gulf Coast who he remembered, who he wanted to include in the book, mm-hmm. and local officials, yeah, who he wanted to include, um, who had a big part. All of the Mississippi Power Company people, um, Jim Barksdale, who ran his commission, as you right. remember, sure, and and of course today being the day after Hurricane Michael, I. I've thought about this conversation that we might have around Katrina and remembering Katrina as the most destructive natural disaster in the history of our country. And here we had one yesterday that morphed it. And and I'm seeing pictures of of that this morning. And another place I lived in the Florida panhandle. Exactly right. And I'm like, here we go again. Uh, And I'm thinking they're going to have to start from the beginning, just like we did. You, You begin by water, food, you know, caring for people, power, and then this whole idea of how you're going to rebuild. It's just astronomical. Well, and if there's any lesson that comes out of Haley's Katrina book, it's you got to build a comprehensive team. Right. That, As you know, there's so many facets to a recovery. And um, unless you bring everybody to the table and you create a team effort, you'll be doing it for the next 30 years. Right. And... In Mississippi, it took about 10 years to, to put it to pieces. But it'll never be the same, of course. It's not the same after any massive right. storm. It's, you know, it changes. But uh, in terms of the economy being restored, you know, day-to-day life being restored, it took, in my view, because I have a house in Bay St. Louis, it took mm-hmm. about 10 years before it felt like just another day in Bay St. Louis. Amazing. It was remarkable. Really? Yeah. So it was really the anniversary, the 10-year Pretty anniversary. that before it actually began to... It so, took me almost seven years to redo my house because my house flooded and I had the wrong insurance, the wind, water deal. Right. I was caught up in that. And But Barbara came along with the homeowner's grant program, mm-hmm. which basically allowed me the opportunity to, to keep my house. Otherwise, I probably would have had to just sold it off for real estate. And so you on. participated in that program? I did because mm-hmm. that was my primary residence. I had... Uh, I'd been living in an apartment over Hallam House, but my only real <laughs> estate holding at the time was this Bay St. Louis house, and it was my primary uh, address, and that was where I uh, filed homestead exemption. It's where I paid my taxes. And which meant uh, you probably didn't have um, a flood insurance because FEMA had told you you didn't need it. Correct. So that's what I was one of those guys. For it. That's right. Well, what an interesting experience yeah. looking back. Painful, 
but interesting. Yeah, well, thank thank goodness for the casinos. Right. So, uh, so you're working on a new book. Those are the three that. Is there, are there more that no, exist? No, Those are the it. three. And then uh, now you're what are you working on now? Well, you, if you don't you, mind. You may not. No, no, sure. Um, you may know that some years ago, Archives and History joined up with the University Press and the Mississippi Historical Society to commission the writing of 15 different books about 15 different periods of Mississippi history. Hmm. They're called the Mississippi Heritage Series. I don't know about it. And um, they put them, they sort of put them out for proposals, and people submitted proposals to a committee. And I submitted a proposal to do the one on Reconstruction. Oh. And in a moment of weakness, they gave it, gave it to me. <laughs> And so I'm about two chapters finished from giving them a manuscript on a history of Reconstruction in Mississippi. Well, that's an awesome task. Which, which um, I knew nothing about it until I started writing our history book with Andy. Because we, in the book, we kind of wanted to go back as far as we needed to go back to sort of find the beginnings of the political, um, the political threads in Mississippi, sort of. When did people become Democrats? When did they become Republicans? When did they shut out African-Americans? When did they shut out Republicans? And how did the the theme of our first book is how do African-Americans and Republicans regain political power in Mississippi? Mm -hmm. Because they're the only ones who had it in Reconstruction. Gotcha. And they lost it in 1875 and didn't get it back until the 1960s, both Republicans and African-Americans. And our book is a story of how that happened. But that took me all the way back to Reconstruction, and I just got fascinated with that 10-year period, and the Historical Society has been very generous in giving me a lot of time to finish it. What's, what's your writing style? I mean, you've written enough now to where you probably have established some sort of routine and style. I mean, we all know Grisham, how he writes. <laughs> I mean, right. he's got a formula he typically writes, not that he hasn't begun to sort of swerve away from it in recent right. times. What's your writing style? What's your process? Well, you know, it's a, I'm assuming it's a little different if you're writing fiction versus nonfiction where somebody like me that's writing a historical work, it, it, um, my, my, I have a desk full of references and resources that I, I try and create a thread in my head about a message that I want to deliver. And then I pull it all in with the resources to footnote it, to use quotes, to use anecdotes. Um, and so I read everything first. I take two years and read everything to create a thread or a narrative that I want to, that I want to deliver. And then I just break it up into chapters. And so, um, I, I don't know, I don't know how, whether a novelist sort of thinks about the entire story all at once or begins writing and the story evolves. You hear or, both. Or it's both? Uh, no, you hear both. Okay. In, in interviewing and listening to interviews of novelists, both you hear both accounts. And um, would you say one's more successful than the other? No, I find the start writing and follow the story to be more interesting, mm -hmm. but I don't know that that's doable for every writer. I think some writers have to have an outline, a process, like you do. You read everything, read everything, and then you begin to think out threads. Do you, do you write every day? 
I, I would love to say I write every day, but I don't because I have several other jobs. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I really have to write. I really have to work a week and take two or three days off and do nothing but write. Mm-hmm. Do you itch to write when you're not, or do you, are you glad to take? The I break? itch to do research. You love the research. Writing is hard. Research is fun. What percent is online versus? Uh, very Based little is online these days. Oh, well, about, about reconstruction. Very little is online for reconstruction. Okay. No, it's all it's all hemmed up in libraries somewhere. All right, we're gonna take another break. Come back and talk to Jerry Nash uh, for one more segment. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. I'm in the studio with my friend Jerry Nash. Welcome back, Jerry. Well, it's an honor to be called your friend. Yeah, Jerry uh, is a. Works in public affairs and politics, but uh, he's also a writer and uh, has has author, co-authored uh, three books and is working on a, a fourth piece, uh, nonfiction. Uh, not that that's not writing, because it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it turns into be creative writing from time to time. Of course it does. Yeah. Yeah. Telling the stories of politics in Mississippi. But you... Uh, were instrumental and a, a very important player in getting this notion of the Mississippi Book Festival up and running. And I've read some accounts of exactly how you remember it happening. And I wondered if you could share with us, uh, you know, how on earth did, did, did you get involved in a concept for the Mississippi Book Festival and how did it happen? Well, um, it had its roots in Louisiana. Um, I was visiting some friends in Baton Rouge and um, they took me to the Louisiana Book Festival mm-hmm. one Saturday afternoon. Um, I don't know for your listeners who've been to the Louisiana State Capitol. The, it's it's the tallest capital in um, in America. It's like twenty eight stories. They built it twenty eight stories so they could put a spotlight on the top of it and shine the spotlight on Huey Long's grave right <laughs> below the uh, in front of the Capitol. Um, but it's it's a huge expanse of land. Yeah lots of sidewalks and I'd you know I'd lived there for four years lobbying at the Capitol and my friends took me to the book festival which was set up on the Capitol grounds with tents everywhere and all of the author panels were in the legislative committee rooms. And um I'd never been to a book festival before and didn't had never heard of a book festival and was just taken aback by thousands of people. Uh, roaming around the Louisiana State Capitol, listening to authors buying books. And I thought, being from Greenville, <laughs> you know, there are probably two authors who are from Louisiana, and there are 180 from Greenville and 5,000 from Mississippi. And Mississippi doesn't have anything like this. Right. And how can a state that's produced two authors have a great deal in Mississippi that's got a literary tradition, doesn't have one of these things? And um, so I came back and um, called up our friend Leela Salisbury, who was had just assumed um, directorship of the University Press. Setha had retired and took her to lunch and asked her if she knew anything about it. She was from Kentucky. They had hired her from Kentucky. So she knew about the book festival and seemed interested in thinking about it. She talked to her marketing person, Steve Yates, who uh-huh. is sort of the... Um, uh, the, the memories are over there. Uh, who, the institutional, institutional knowledge. knowledge. Who remembered maybe 10 years ago they had tried one. You may remember that they had tried one one year in Mississippi and it didn't. It was so bad that people had erased it from their collective <laughs> memory. 
<laughs> and um, Steve got excited about it, and Leela got it excited about it. And um, you were director of tourism for MDA at the time. And uh, Leela and I thought, well, there, there are two people that have to buy into this in order for it to proceed. Uh, that would be John Evans at Lemuria and Malcolm White at um, Tourism, MDA, Arts Commission, the whole thing. So you and I had coffee at um, at uh, the at Elite. The, that's right. And um, and um, I actually, you told me you wanted to talk about this, and I I dug out from my email uh, an email that you had sent me after our coffee at the Elite, where you said, "Let's do this together. I'm all over this." <laughs> and um, and um, so John Evans, of course, at Lemuria, uh, got all excited about it, and we all put our heads together. And we came up with a working group of people to have a first meeting, which just for you, I brought that list. Um, I was going to I was going to test you <laughs> to see if you could remember who came to that meeting because you brought Sarah McCullough. I did. And um, he was working with me at Visit Mississippi. That's right. And Leela Salisbury and Steve Yates came from the University Press from MPB. Ronnie Agnew and Mara Irby came. Right. Um, Arts Commission were. Well, it would have been Mary Margaret Miller. And Diane Williams. Diane Williams. And the Library Commission, Tracy Carr. Right. And um, uh, Joe Hickman and John came from Lemuria. Emily Gatlin came from Tupelo. She had just finished working at Reed's Bookstore. And, um, and of course, we, we had to have sort of a um, um, uh, an, an, someone to represent um, the intellectual part of Mississippi, and that was... Peyton Prosper. Peyton, yes, from Greenville. From Greenville. <laughs> and um, we all got together at, um, at um, John's um, Lemuria.com right. and hashed it, out over, um, hashed it out over a year. Again, you were kind enough to give us a grant that allowed us to bring the directors from the book festivals in Arkansas, Louisiana, and Tennessee they spent a day with us, if you yes, remember. Yes, and I went to that. We had a convening once again in dot com. Dot com. In we spent a whole day with right. um, with those folks who we all thought that why reinvent the wheel? Mm -hmm. These are three very successful book festivals, and they gave us tons of advice. And then it wasn't long after that that um, you and I were having another cup of coffee, and you said, "You know who else we need to get involved is Holly Lang." Um, I know Holly. I've done a lot of work with Holly, and and you had some memory that she may have worked at the Texas Book Festival. Well, she grew up in Austin and, yeah. and grew up going to the Texas Book Festival. And, and uh, in fact, had helped uh, Laura Bush get it started. Correct. And um, and so um, you and I started trying to track down Holly, and we ultimately got her involved, and she started meeting with us. And um, the group formed into an official board and hired Holly to be the executive director. And we'll be celebrating our fifth anniversary uh, on August the 19th, 2019. And um, Holly will have been director for five years. And almost all of those board members are still there. And um, you, you did as much as anybody helping to launch us. And it was a big deal. Well, it's, it's been a great experience and, and incredibly successful. I mean, even when as a former, you know, a reform promoter, I used to have, well, you know, you sort of set your expectations here and you think, well, if we could just do this, it would be a great place for year one or two. And, 
But man, this thing, it, it, it excelled expectations, it seems like, from the very beginning. It, that right. was, that's been my experience. The first year we had a little over 3,000 people attend, and th- earlier this year, on August, we had 7,600 attend. And uh, 180 authors on official panels, another 80 authors who had self-published their works in Authors Alley. So, I mean, you're talking about 240, 250 authors. In one place on one afternoon, and rattle off a few of the of the names that uh, that that have come, and particularly the big names. I mean, Salman Rushdie this past year, like holy cow. Well, Angie Thomas. Now look at what's happened right. to her career. But go ahead. Um, well, we, we've you and I first have to give a tip of the hat to John Grisham because he agreed to come to the first one, correct, and um, really helped generate excitement and help kick off. Um, the first Mississippi Book Festival. Um, and, it's, and it's critical that, that a book buyer and a book seller needs to be in the mix because this is a business. And <laughs> in order to attract well-known writers who are trying to sell books, you need to have someone on vital committees who's in that business, not just someone who thinks it's a great idea. And that was John. For us, that's right, and and um, and John, of course, has contacts all over the country, and so the minute he agreed to um, to um, come to the book festival and to to speak, to actually kick it off, if you remember, mm-hmm. um, it gave us instant credibility um, all over the country. We got very lucky that C-SPAN, which has a book TV channel, right. um, they thought all they they were very. They were very, they took note that John had agreed to come, but more importantly, unlike a lot of other people, these are people in Washington who know that Mississippi has this wonderful literary tradition, and they know that Mississippi produces a bunch of people who write great fiction and nonfiction, and so the minute we gave them the opportunity to come broadcast live four or five of the panels, they didn't hesitate to come. Right. And... I, many other book festival directors have told us that it's rare that book TV will come do a book festival live the first time they come, but they came to us and we set them up in the old Supreme Court chamber in the state capitol, which gives them a great venue. Right. And um, they've just been great partners in this all along. So we we started that short conversation about praising John Evans at Lemuria for becoming our partner. Then we segued to John Grisham agreeing to come to the first one and to kind of be that notoriety that we needed. We were talking about two Johns. I just want to make sure our <laughs> listeners can, can know that we made the segue from... They're both very famous. Very famous. <laughs> there go. They're both named John. But, but, but you, you, you make a good point about... Um, uh, the book festival is is all about connecting readers with writers. Mm-hmm. That um, that we want we want to we want, we want readers to come hear their favorite authors, and we want to put them in touch with people they may not have ever read, but if they got to know them and read their books, they would go buy their books. And so, it's all about being with your friends, all about getting to know new friends who write books, and it's a. Uh, you can accomplish that when you put 180 authors together in one place. And as you say, we're coming up on our fifth anniversary right. in 2019. Um, and, and just to reiterate the amazing story that is Mississippi, 
and literature in Mississippi. Besides this book festival, which is incredibly successful, there's also the Conference on the Book in Oxford, right. the Natchez Literary and Film and Cinema yeah. Celebration. Yeah. There is the DeGromman Collection and the Festival in Hattiesburg for Children's The K.B. Fagler Festival. Fagler Festival. It's remarkable. Well, the, and you've got, um, you've got a similar Eudora Welty Festival in Columbus. Columbus. Tennessee Williams Festival in Columbus. Tennessee Williams Festival in Clarksdale. Um, I mean, they're just the, all over the place. And, and the hits just keep on coming. And, and Greenville now has a literary festival. Around the Tamale. That's right. The Delta Tamale Festival, which Julia Reed uh, organizes. That's correct. It's called the From Literary Mashup, I think, or I think some something such. like that. But anyway. Um, but the, 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 the other, the other one, one of the many reasons that the book festival in Mississippi has been successful is that um, Mississippi has a wonderful infrastructure of independent bookstores all over the state. We do. Um, and the library system is very strong and goes deep into many communities. Uh, so when you put the owners of all of these independent book festivals on book bookstores on your board, and you put folks with the library commission on your board, and you put folks with um, public broadcasting and the arts commission and tourism on your board, you've developed a huge infrastructure that right. supports this kind of work, and that that helps that helps to be successful. And the university press and the humanities council all on board. All cultural agencies are in 100%. And, and I'll tell you uh, a secret that has been um, also part of our success, and that's Community Foundation of Mississippi. Uh, we, we are able to piggyback on their 501c3 status. We formed an agreement with them. Um, when you make a contribution to this Mississippi Book Festival, it's tax deductible. Right. And they handle all of our finances. Um, they receive all of our contributions. They they make all of our payments. They keep up with our records. They make sure that we're audited. They're sort of an independent fiscal agent. And um, we couldn't do this without them. And while the festival itself is incredibly successful and we'll be celebrating five years in 2019, one of the other amazing positives that has come out of it is because of the success of the book festival, we have launched the Writer's Trail, the statewide, statewide Writer's Trail, using members of your board and the Community Foundation for Mississippi as the fiscal umbrella, almost mimicking what y'all are doing. And the Arts Commission is mimicking what you're doing by having our statewide arts conference on August the 18th at the state capitol. Well, there you go. Because y'all did it, we are doing it. And um, this is something you and I could spend the next um, several hours talking about, but it, it's also part and parcel of this thing called cultural tourism. Yes. That you're so familiar with that um, to their great credit, um, the, the legislature and MDA are funding. They've gotten behind. The legislature has funded the book festival and uh, been an integral supporter of it. And um, it, 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 it's a way of bringing people together right. under one roof to talk about our, our traditions and, um, and what makes us strong. And it's, it's one of those things that, that is a positive for Mississippi. This is one of those things that we've gotten right, that we have every right to celebrate. No question. And we do it well, and everybody's on board, and it's a tremendous success. Jerry Nash, thanks for coming in to the Arts Hour. Look forward to your upcoming book on Reconstruction.
and thank you for all you've done. Absolutely. It's, you're a great partner. And we will see everyone next Sunday right here on the Mississippi Arts Hour, 5 o'clock every Sunday evening. Thank you. And, Kevin, we will see you then. <laughs>